Let me ask you a question. What would you do if you knew what was actually going to happen to you tomorrow? Would that have an effect on you? <laughs> if you actually knew what was going to happen to you tomorrow or, or some other time in the future? You know, say somehow, just some way, it's, it's not going to happen, but, you know, if it was possible for you to look into the future, would that, would knowing that have an effect on you? Would seeing into the future actually change your behavior today? If I had to guess, I'd say it would. Would it make you live with any more urgency in your life? The fact is, really, none of us knows what tomorrow holds. And even the book of James, the Apostle James said, uh, you know, it's not wise for you to say, hey, I'm going to, you know, tomorrow I'm going to go and do this, and I'm going to go buy and sell and do all these sort of things. James says it's it's everything is Lord willing. Most of us probably know someone who's been given some sort of a timeline on their life. You know, there's there's doctors that occasionally will say, hey, you got, you know, so much time to live. But the reality is there there is no doctor in the world who can uh, exactly say how long somebody is going to live because doctors really don't have that much power and authority and knowledge, do they? They can, they they try to guess sometimes, don't they? And doctors just don't hold the power of life and death like God does. And there's no person in the world that knows the future. But again, we're going to see even today, Jesus knows. Jesus knows what's going to happen in in His future here, as as we'll look at in just a moment in Matthew chapter 26. But even even beyond that, he he understood his whole purpose in coming to earth. We saw it right at the very beginning of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. Why did Jesus come? He came to save his people from their sins. He knew he was going to the cross to die. He knew the, the, the form of his execution. He knew the exact day he was going to die. It's interesting, uh, everything in the story of God's redemptive plan centers on the cross. And it's through the cross of Christ alone the Lord has provided the way for sinners to be saved, for, for us to no longer be God's enemies, but to be united with Him, to be in fellowship with Him. The Bible says there's no salvation, there's no gospel, there's no biblical Christianity apart from the cross of Christ. It's very exclusive. The Apostle Paul believed this truth, which is why he told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2, he said, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That wasn't a popular message, by the way. And it isn't today either. And you'd say, is that just something in the New Testament? No. Did you know the Old Testament points to the cross of Jesus Christ as well? For example, John the Baptist, who is the last of the Old Testament prophets, the last prophet of that old covenant, if you will, he actually testified of Jesus in John 1. He says this, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You have to understand the Old Testament imagery of a lamb and what was the the purpose of all those sacrifices God told His people to, 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 to perform was all looking forward to the Lamb, who was, of course, Jesus Christ. And so above all else, you have to understand, the Christian gospel is the message of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And that's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says that the gospel is of first importance, and he says that it's, it's about Jesus' death and resurrection. And so Matthew here, he's, he's going to spend a lot of time dealing with this subject. Matthew deals with the cross in a very concise and, and straightforward way. His gospel uh, has been called by some kind of like the expanded narrative of the cross. Uh, in these last three chapters, 26, 27, 28, he's focusing on this central theme. It's all, he's, he's all been building. It's, it's coming to the climax. His whole purpose in coming was to save his people from their sins. It's all headed to the cross and the resurrection. And so let me just kind of give you an overview of these last three chapters, which we'll, over the coming weeks, be looking at. In 26, Matthew details for us the preparation of Jesus going to the cross. He's going to talk about the arrest of Jesus. In chapter 27, he presents Jesus' trials, and eventually Jesus is is executed. He gives up his spirit, the Bible says, and then he is buried. And then in chapter 28, Jesus comes out of the grave. He doesn't stay there. He's resurrected. And then we have those amazing words of Jesus' final instructions to his disciples. And that ends the book of Matthew. This, this good news, this gospel that Matthew is primarily writing to the Jews, showing that Jesus is king, he is the Messiah. And so here in Matthew 26, it, you need to understand the context. We've, we've just finished the Olivet Discourse, chapters 24 and 25, and so it's picking up the, the narrative here at the end of the Olivet Discourse, and that's why verse 1, Matthew 26 verse 1 says, When Jesus had finished all these sayings. So the, the sayings of the Olivet Discourse, chapter 24 and 25. So Jesus had just finished that teaching. The setting here is, is I'll remind you, it's, it's the Holy Week, where it's just a couple days till Jesus' death. In, in fact, he even says it here. We'll read it in just a moment. Uh, there is some debate on which day this is. Uh, I tend to think it's probably Tuesday. Jesus is here on the Mount of Olives. He's been teaching his disciples. He's privately taught the disciples about his second coming. And now he's going to remind them, hey, what, what's this first coming all about? And so the Lord's abruptly, he's bringing them back to the main purpose of his first coming. And by the way, he's going to talk about his death and his resurrection. This isn't the first time he's done this in Matthew. In fact, uh, he's done it at least three other times. And so this is apparently his fourth and his last time, and he's going to tell them of his inevitable death, and he says it's going to happen two days later. So you have to understand, the crucifixion itself was the next major event in the Messiah's mission. He's done his teaching, his training, and now he recognizes he has to die according to his father's plan. And he clearly says it here. So let's look at the king's prediction, King Jesus' prediction here in these first two verses of Matthew 26. The Word of God says this, When Jesus had finished all these sayings, the sayings of the Olivet Discourse, He said to His disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered, delivered up to be crucified. So Jesus is very specific here. So He knows the form of His execution is crucifixion, 
He knows where he's going to die. It's going to be in the vicinity of Jerusalem. And he knows the exact day. It's two days from this point here. Now, this is important. There's something I need to remind you of. Hopefully, it's a reminder that when Jesus became a man, his what we often, theologians, call it the incarnation. In his incarnation, Jesus voluntarily limited himself of his divine attributes, right? He was, he's God, right? He, he's, he even said, I am one with the Father. I and the Father are one. He, he's, he was God from all eternity past, and he still is. But when he came as a man, he voluntarily limited himself in certain ways. And that's what Philippians 2 talks about. And here's what the Bible says, Philippians 2, verse 7. Jesus emptied himself. How did he do this? By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This, this is important for a lot of reasons, but one of the things that's important you have to recognize is nobody can kill God, all right? Nobody could do that unless God allows himself to go through this. So you need to understand, during Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus taught only what his heavenly Father revealed to him. He was submitted to his Father's plan and his will all all through this. And Jesus says this in many places. For example, in John 12, Jesus said, The Father himself who sent me has given me commandment. Go ahead. There we go. So the Father himself who sent me has given me commandment, what to say and what to speak. Jesus is saying what his Father wanted him to say. He's doing what his Father wanted him to do. Now, that doesn't mean Jesus is not equal with the Father, okay? But there is, there is, a, there is an equalness, an equality. They're one, they're united, but Jesus is willingly submitting himself to the Father. Now Jesus knew it was time for him to die. He knew it was now time. He declared that he must suffer. He, he's declaring, he's saying, I, I'm going to be crucified. But not only that, he also specified his death was only two days away. Now, how many people can, can, can say that and know it with certainty? Uh, probably nobody. And he's purposely picked Passover, by the way. And, and the Bible mentions that. Did you notice that in verse 2? You know that after two days, the Passover's coming. So hopefully you understand the Old Testament imagery. If you don't, read the book of Exodus, please. All right, so take the afternoon, read Exodus, and you'll see, see all about the, uh, the, the Passover and how the Jews, how they, even, even today, they celebrate Passover. And so it was, it was at this divinely appointed time that Jesus Christ would be delivered up for crucifixion. I'll explain a little bit more about this in a moment, but we need to understand Jesus has already predicted at least three times, three times in Matthew he's going to suffer. Uh, hey, hey, guys, he's told them all, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be mocked, I'm going to scourge, I'm going to die, but I am going to rise again on the third day. So he's indicated his death would be in Jerusalem, but I'm not going to stay dead. Death will not hold me. So, 
Jesus is on a divine timetable here. No human plans or power could cause this timetable to vary. Nothing is going to stop Jesus from accomplishing his purpose. He, he said this many different ways in other books. For example, John 10, verse 18, look what Jesus says here. It's on the screen. No one has taken my life away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. My friends, you realize Jesus is invincible. Nobody can kill Jesus unless he purposely chooses to lay his life down. Right? He's... Oh, but there, there are some ridiculous heresies out there. One of them is, is that Jesus is just some, some poor lunatic guy who got himself caught up in self, some revolution and the Romans killed him. No. <laughs> Jesus lays his life down for his sheep. And then in John 19, again, you can see Jesus is before Pilate, and Pilate says to Jesus, here, here it is on the screen again, do you not know that I have authority to release you? And I have authority to crucify you? Look at Jesus' response here. He answers, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. So who's really in charge here? Who's in control? Pilate? The Romans? No. Oh, they, they think they are, don't they? No, no. It's God's in charge here. He is the one who is sovereign. And, and, and again, I'll remind you, uh, throughout Matthew and the Gospels, we, we've seen this several times, many people tried to kill Jesus, didn't they? This isn't the first time. There are many times people sought to kill Jesus, but they couldn't do it. Why? Because it wasn't the right time. The Jewish religious leaders had been plotting Jesus' death for, for, for years now. And they did it at the beginning of his public ministry, but they weren't able to actually fulfill their purpose in killing Jesus. Their intention could not be fulfilled until it was God's timetable. So the first attempt on Jesus' life, I remind you, Matthew talks about this, was way back when he was born and he took on flesh. Remember, King Herod, didn't, he didn't like hearing about this King of the Jews, this, this Messiah, this Jesus, and so... King Herod uh, massacred all the male babies in the in the region around Bethlehem. Was he successful in killing Jesus? No. <laughs> uh, you remember God sent an angel to warn Joseph and Mary, and and so as as Bible prophecy was predicted, uh, they went down to Egypt, and therefore Jesus lived. There was another occasion, an interesting one, when Jesus was ministering in the synagogue. There in the Jewish synagogue, he was teaching. He was at his hometown of Nazareth, and as a result uh, of the teaching, the people became angry. They thought Jesus was blaspheming, and so they, they took Jesus and they were leading him out to the edge of a cliff, and, and the idea was they wanted to kill Jesus. They're going to throw Jesus off the cliff. Were they successful? No. <laughs> Yet again, we, we see the Bible says that Jesus was able to pass through their midst. It was a miracle somehow, and he went away safely. That's in Luke chapter 4. So there, there's a few examples you can see where people tried to kill Jesus. All those attempts to kill Jesus failed because it was not God's time. It was not God's way for His Son to die. So only the sovereign grace of God could have brought Jesus to the cross. Humanly speaking, 
He should have never made it there. He should have have died before then. No human power could have accomplished this apart from God's will. And by the way, no human power could now prevent it. Nobody could prevent Jesus from dying because, again, it was the Lord's timetable. It was God's plan. And and Peter even talked about this at Pentecost in in Acts chapter 2. Look at this, because here's what Peter says. He says that Jesus was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Whose plan was this? It was God's plan. This this isn't an accident. This the Romans aren't in charge here. Pilate's not in charge. The religious leaders of, of the Jews are not in charge. God's in control. And so the appropriate time for Jesus to die, notice again, verse 2, was at Passover. And, and I'll remind you, in case you don't know your Old Testament history, Passover was that, that time, uh, I think it's in Exodus 12, if I remember correctly, where where uh, the children of Israel were, were in Egypt, they're in, they're in slavery to Egypt, they're in bondage. God uh, said in that last plague that he, he gave to Egypt that if you put the blood on the doorposts and on the top of the door and you sacrifice a, an unblemished lamb, that the death angel would pass over your house. The firstborn wouldn't be killed. And God used that to uh, deliver his people from the bondage in Egypt. And the Jews have been celebrating Passover since then. And so, here it is. Two days away is when Jesus chooses to die on Passover. Just when the, the you know, just probably millions of Jews have been flooding into Jerusalem. All these sacrificial lambs were slain. And it's it's at this point, during that celebration, that the Lamb of God came to take away the sin of the world. You'll see a picture. By the way, I hope you know his his name is Yeshua, (laughs) Jesus. And so here we have the sacrifices of all these other lambs that we've we've seen all throughout the Old Testament, building up to Jesus' time. Those things are just symbols. They're, They're just there to show people they're sinners and that they need the Lamb of God. All those lambs, the thousands and thousands of lambs that have been slaughtered throughout the centuries, those things only covered sin. They never actually dealt with the sin. They needed Jesus, the true lamb, who is the reality. Now you might ask, well, why Passover? Why did Jesus pick Passover? Why is God's plan for His Son to die on a cross when thousands and thousands of lambs were being slaughtered? Well, the Passover feast was celebrated annually. It was commemorating Israel's escape from Egypt. What better time could it, could you pick? It was the perfect time for, for God to connect His Son's death with the Passover. A visual illustration, if you will. The Apostle Paul, by the way, recognized the spiritual significance when in 1 Corinthians 5, he, he, he brought the connection together for us, in case you, we missed it. Paul calls Jesus our Passover lamb in 1 Corinthians 5. Philip, he was trying to, uh, if you read in Acts chapter 8, he was trying to explain to the Ethiopian eunuch what he was reading in, in the prophet Isaiah. And Philip was explaining, he says that Jesus was that lamb that was led to the slaughter and, and he didn't even open up his mouth. He's not trying to stop this. Jesus was 
was willingly going to the cross. The Apostle Peter said Jesus was the unblemished lamb. And here's what Peter says in 1 Peter 1. He says, it's, did I put that up there, Hamish? 1 Peter 1. talks about the unblemished lamb that was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but who has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. The Apostle John, in the last book of your Bible, Revelation 5, he says that Jesus was the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So my friend, this isn't just an Old Testament concept. It's all throughout the Bible. Jesus is the Lamb of God who came to take away your sin. So this was Jesus' plan. It was God's plan. Jesus knows what's happening. and It's all being fulfilled. Other people think they're in control, but all throughout the midst of this, my friends, if you walk away with nothing else today, here's the theme. God is in control. God's in control. Never forget that. It's a very comforting truth. Well, and then in verses 3 to 5, we see the plot of the leaders. So let's read this. Verse 3, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast lest there be an uproar among the people. Very interesting. Who's really in charge here? Who's really in control? These people think they're in control, don't they? They're plotting. They're scheming. And so here's Jesus. He's out on the Mount of Olives teaching his disciples for for pretty much the last time here. He's talking to his disciples there and the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish religious council, and, and, and the high priests who include Caiaphas here. Where are they? They're gathered together in, in the high priest palace, scheming, plotting. And by the way, what do we know about this guy? The, you know, Because Matthew obviously knew who this was. The Holy Spirit knew who it was. Mentions his name here. What do we know? Well, every time the high priest Caiaphas is, is mentioned in the Bible, he's it's not in a good light. He's seen as a, as a guy who is conniving. He's treacherous. He's, he's a very deceitful man. He's very selfish and proud. He's, he's pursuing the destruction of Jesus here. He doesn't like Jesus. You say, well, why, why does he not like Jesus? Well, you have to understand, this has nothing to do with theology or doctrine. That, that's, that's not it. This is a political issue with Caiaphas. It's a political issue. So the fear of Jesus is is a political issue. Caiaphas wanted to destroy Jesus because he feared Jesus because Jesus is actually posing a threat to his wealth and his position. He's he's raising up, uh, he's he's in fear of the Jewish people as well. What is Jesus going to do to the Jewish people? You know, if they all go on his side, I'm in big trouble. By the way, why did the Sanhedrin assemble in Caiaphas' house? That's what the Bible says. Why? Well, they got one purpose here. All right? Don't lose sight of this. One purpose, they're plotting how they can seize Jesus. Why do they want to seize Jesus? Why not just kill him? Well, they're afraid of the people. 
They, they're wanting to do this by stealth in order not to antagonize all the masses that have assembled and, and come together in Jerusalem for the Passover. Remember, what happened? We, we call it Palm Sunday, just a few days before this. What happened? Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, right? What are the people doing? They're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. They're at all the celebration, throwing down palm branches and their garments before the king of the Jews. Do you think that went on notice to Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin? No way. <laughs> they probably heard it. If they didn't see it, they probably heard it. And so they're afraid of all the masses that have come here into Jerusalem. And, and so once they had him firmly in their grasp, then they, then they were probably thinking, okay, then we'll kill him when it is actually a more favorable time. Because it appeared that all the masses were, were on Jesus' side. And so they're determined to put an end to this, this guy who's, who's constantly, think about this, what has he been doing? Jesus has been exposing their hypocrisy. He's called them hypocrites. Read, read chapter 23. He's, he's exposing their ungodliness. He's, he's actually a threat to their power and their wealth. And if you were unsaved, and, and you were very self-centered and proud and and you enjoyed your wealth and your position in life, you'd probably be doing the same thing. That's what unsaved people do. And so apparently they plan to arrest Jesus as soon as possible. But before he had an opportunity to somehow escape or somehow amass some more support from the people. And so he would then be held in custody. That was the idea as far as we know until the Passover crowds that had left Jerusalem and the Passover's over. And then it would be a safer time to put Jesus to death. And that's why the Bible uh, in verse 5 says, uh, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So as far as we know, that's what they're thinking. Now why did they plan to wait to kill Jesus? Well, remember, God's invincible. By the way, so are you. You're invincible until it's God's time for you to go. So Jesus is invincible until it's God's time for him to go. People have been trying to kill him all through his life, and God has spared him, and now's the time. Jesus knows this. And so it's at this time, here we have uh, in Jerusalem, all these pilgrims, they've come from far and wide, Probably a lot of the people who Jesus had been ministering to up in Galilee, they've all come down to Jerusalem as well. And so there's all these worshipers, if you will, these people who've come for the Passover festival. And uh, the Jewish historian Josephus, it's interesting, he, he said there were uh, approximately 256,000 sacrificial lambs slaughtered during Passover time. Just think about that. 256,000 lambs. I mean, that's, that's more than we have in New Zealand, isn't it? As far as I know, <laughs> that's a lot of lambs. And, and so that was typically, according to the Jewish historian who lived around the time of Jesus, that's, that's what he was saying, the amount of lambs that was sacrificed. So if tradition carried on, it was actually required from, from all the way back to the book of Genesis that no fewer than 10 people were to eat one lamb. So you take 10 times 256,000 people, you, you get an idea of how many people were coming into Jerusalem. So some have said there could have been up to 2 million people 
coming to Jerusalem for Passover festival. And so many of the worshipers would have been from, from places like, uh, uh, you know, all the way up into Galilee and other, and other places. So Jesus is popular. He's been preaching. He's been healing, doing miracles. And so there's a, there's, here we got this large number of admirers who've come to Jerusalem. And they're there in the multitudes. They've already spread their garments out before King Jesus. They've laid down the palm branches on the road before King Jesus. And so that's why they were planning to wait to kill Jesus. So from the standpoint of the Jewish leaders here, Passover was probably the worst possible time for them to put Jesus to death. But yet God says, that's exactly when I'm going to do it. That's the time. Here they're, they're fearing that it's going to actually cause a riot. Did you see that? In verse 5, lest there be an uproar among the people. They're fearing a riot taking place. So they're, they're concerned about this. But Passover was the time God had chosen. Not Caiaphas and the Jewish Sanhedrin. This was God's plan. It wasn't theirs. They're plotting, but God's in control. And so during the many times when they wanted to kill Jesus immediately, they couldn't. And now they want, you know, now they don't want Jesus dead. They actually want to postpone it. Is the exact time God picks to kill his son. How ironic. God's time was during the Passover. So again, who's in charge? God is. God's in charge. God's in control. And he's using even even sinful, unsaved people to accomplish his purposes. So it's a little text. But there's a powerful truth. There's several powerful truths. And, and the main one that I want you to walk away with today is that you must believe that God is in sovereign control. And this is, I think, the most important lesson we can learn from this particular text, that God is in sovereign control of everything. So despite the, the downward spirals of, of events that seem to be taking place, humanly speaking, even to the disciples, this, this looked like a horrible situation. Jesus resolutely goes forward. He knows it's His time to die. He's trusting the Father's will, even though things look bad. And this isn't comfortable for Him. You probably know what happens in the Garden of, uh, of Gethsemane. And he's sweating like great drops of blood. And so I ask, how about you? How about you? Do you believe that nobody can stop God from accomplishing His will? Do you really believe that? You know, know, we can say we believe that during good times, but when times get difficult, you know, you, you, you get, you know, you lose a job or your health goes bad or, you know, something bad happens to one of your siblings or your mother or your child, right? We see friends suffering in various ways. Very, very easy to start, you know, at least a twinge of doubt to come in. Do I really believe, do I really believe that nobody, nothing can stop God from accomplishing His will? Well, I certainly do. I believe that. I believe this was God's will. It was prophesied in the Old Testament hundreds of years before, and God was accomplishing His purpose. And so we need to remember that even the treacherous plots here of the Sanhedrin could not do anything 
except work out God's will. <laughs> they think they're in charge, but they're not. And so this message is critical in our time. We, we, we live in a society of, of affluence and, and wealth and, and plenty. Yes, even in New Zealand. We not, may not be as rich as other countries of the world, but we're not third world conditions. And so as a result, uh, we have a lot of people, uh, your friends and your workmates and your family members, who they don't know how to handle life's difficulties and setbacks. When, when you know, if they lose a job, for example, they, a lot of people just fall apart. Don't know how to handle that. And so as a result, uh, yeah, they're, they're obviously not trusting God. They're not glorifying God through those setbacks. And so uh, we, we do not realize that God's power is often, it's just showing, he's, he's magnifying himself, he's exalting himself, showing himself to be, be greater during those difficulties. Paul even acknowledges that. First Corinthians, God, God told, told Paul, no, Paul, you get to keep your thorn in the flesh because it's through your weakness that I'm going to show myself strong. And so the lesson is that we must continue to follow God's known will in the Bible even when we can't see the future. God has revealed all that we need to know. And Peter said every, we have everything we need for life and godliness here in the Word of God in the Bible. So we need to follow that known will in the Bible even when we cannot see a light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak. Well, there's a second thing you need to believe. Number two, believe that Jesus is Lord of all, even over His enemies. Now, this is a very comforting truth. If you, if you think of it in this passage here, the leaders were plotting, the religious Jewish leaders are plotting. They're, they're, they're wanting Jesus dead. But in the process, what are they actually doing? They're actually fulfilling Bible prophecy. They're actually, they're actually fulfilling Jesus' prophecy. Jesus says, I, I'm going to die at Passover. The very time, the very time that, that, uh, they didn't want Jesus to be killed is the very time it's going to happen. And so his enemies are under the control of God. Even in the midst of their evil plots. They can only do their part in, in this greater drama that's unfolding. And so it's true today for us as well. Certainly true for us as well. Right? You think about it. Sometimes it seems as if Satan is in control. Sometimes it might seem like, uh, you know, other people are in control, but are they really? No. They're not in control. Satan's not in control. He's just a puppet. In fact, the Bible says he is doomed. His ultimate end will be the lake of fire. So my friend, believe Jesus is Lord, even over enemies, even over your enemies. Number three, this is important to recognize. Yes, God is in control, but human beings are held accountable for what they do. Human beings are held accountable for what they do. Caiaphas did horrible things, ungodly on sinful things. But we see that, that through the midst of this, God is sovereign. Yes, God is sovereign. He's in control. But mankind is also responsible for what they do. I'm assuming Caiaphas went to hell. As far as we know, he never repented of his sin. 
He never put his faith in Jesus Christ alone. So if that's the case, then today he is in hell and he is going to be held accountable for his own sin, for his life. Number four, believe that death is gain. Believe. Do you you believe that? Death is gain? Paul said so. For me to live as Christ and to die is gain. He believed it. Jesus believed it. And so it's best for Jesus to die, humanly speaking, and even for the disciples, they thought their life was falling apart. (laughs) But it was best that he die. And so that's, you know, it's the same for us. You're invincible until God wants you to die. You're going to die the exact moment that God wants you to die. And when you do, your death is actually going to be your greatest victory. Even for the martyrs in Iraq, their death is victory. It's often been said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. God is accomplishing His purposes often through martyrs. And so if, if you know, it's your time to go, to be with Jesus, then it's going to be for your good and it's going to be for God's glory. We can glorify God through death. The last thing that I want you to think about is this, that we need to continue to grow in the knowledge of, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Continue to grow. And Jesus is many things to, to those who believe who Jesus is. And I just want to highlight a few things for you to think about here, okay? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus Christ? Number one, Jesus, we can see here, is the prophesied deliverer. He's the prophesied deliverer. He's the one who's fulfilling Scripture in so many ways. And I'll give you one. Read, read Isaiah chapter 53. What is Jesus doing? As we see here, he is, he is fulfilling all of the prophecies. Jesus is the slain Messiah who's coming to bring spiritual deliverance from sin. He is the one who's paying the penalty for your sin. You, you have a, you have a debt that is unpayable. You could spend eternity in a lake of fire, in torment forever and ever, and, and never pay that penalty but jesus comes he pays the fine fully paid in full you're free you're no longer guilty he's that promised deliverer number two jesus is a sacrificial servant again read isaiah chapter 53 what does it say it says that the messiah would be a servant we often call that that section of, of the, the prophet Isaiah the, the, the servant songs. You'll see capital S servant mentioned several times there. Messiah is that servant. This servant would be the one to spill his blood. And by the way, it was a willing sacrifice. Jesus didn't have to. He willingly sacrificed himself. And number three, Jesus is a willing Lord. He's a willing Lord. Some people think of Jesus as... You know, he's just kind of caught up in the circumstances. He's a victim of circumstances. He can't help. You know, he's just, it just happened. He's in the wrong place at the wrong time. No, he's not. He's not a victim of circumstances. He is the one who's in control of the circumstances. And then last, Jesus is a humble king. Yes, he is king of the Jews, and he is king of kings and lord of lords, but what what do we see here? We see someone who, who's coming humbly. He knows that who he is and, and what he has to do. 
At his birth, we see Jesus was worshipped as king of the Jews. Those wise men or magi come from, from distant lands in the east, and they come and they, they worship this baby who is king of the Jews. Born in a manger, a, a cattle feeding trough. <laughs> and here he is at his crucifixion. He, he's mocked, he's scourged, he's made fun of. And what do they put on the plaque above his head? King of the Jews. That's what he said he was. So my friends, when King Jesus returns, though, it's all going to be different. His first coming was was in humility. But we know what his second coming is going to be like, don't we? He's going to come in the clouds and power and great glory. He said that in Matthew 24 and 25. Revelation says so as well. When he comes, every eye will see him and everyone's gonna, they will bow the knee to King Jesus and he will receive the exaltation and the, the worship and the honor that he deserves. My, my friend, we need to grow in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's what we need to meditate upon. We need to live in light of him, his person and his work. And when you do, my friend, It'll make all the difference in your life. It'll quiet your noisy soul. It drives the fear away. You know what 1 John 4.18 says? Perfect love cast out fear. We don't, we don't understand God's love for us when we're fearing. That fear, there's, there, we're meditating on wrong content. God wants us to meditate on King Jesus, His person and His work. So may God enable you to do that, give you His grace.